I had just transferred universities when it first started. One moment I would be fine, and then I would have to run to the toilet, desperately hoping that it was vacant. I would be hit by cramps that felt like someone was beating my guts with a tire iron, and I was always tired. These symptoms concerned my doctor, and they gave me painkillers and took a battery of tests. In the next week, symptoms got worse. I was having to get up multiple times in the night to use the bathroom. I was passing blood, and my stomach had become so painfully distended that it looked like it was a balloon. On my next appointment, my doctors immediately called an ambulance, and I was taken to Ninewells Hospital. I did not remember the first week there. I had developed a fever so high that I was hallucinating, and when I was given paracetamol intravenously, it would go down to 39 degrees Celsius, or 102.2 Fahrenheit. Eventually, I was taken for an endoscopic camera test. The inside of my intestine was inflamed and lacerated, and at the time I was given a provisional diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. On new medication, I improved a little and was discharged. Unfortunately, my health declined, and I was readmitted upon my next checkup and given an emergency colectomy. It was one of the most aggressive cases that they had seen. Over 80% of my colon was riddled with ulcers and deep knife-like lacerations, and I was told that it would have been a matter of days before it had ruptured and killed me. Recovering from surgery was difficult, as I had many complications. My digestive system stopped, and I had to receive all my nutrients intravenously. After bouncing in and out of hospital, I was finally discharged a few days before Christmas, with a piece of intestine sticking out of my stomach known as a stoma, and a staggering 37 kilos, or 81.5 pounds lighter, than when I had gone in. The next eight months before returning to uni involved recovering and travel. I was told that patients with ulcerative colitis stopped experiencing symptoms after a colectomy, so although scarred, I was relieved and underwent some reconstructive surgery. My first semester back was lovely, and over the Christmas holidays I finished the reconstructive surgery and had the stoma removed. My second semester was less good. I started experiencing intestinal symptoms that would leave me bedridden and painful swellings in my legs and ankles, which made walking impossible without aid. I was readmitted to hospital, and after a series of tests including an MRI, it was observed that not only did I now have inflammation in the small intestine, but a hole between my gut and the outside world known as a fistula had developed. My diagnosis was revised to Crohn's disease. This was never leaving me. I have adjusted how I can to this. I have completed my bachelor's and master's degrees, and I married the woman who supported me through my suffering and refused to leave. I have climbed the tallest mountains of both England, Scotland, and Wales, and I have been able to write this podcast, all while adjusting to my new normal. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. I'm not crying. You're crying. It's okay. Um, if you hadn't already worked out, that's my story. So I don't really need to ask Jules what subject we're covering today, because I think she knows, don't you? Yep, we're talking about Crohn's disease, the condition that you have fought for several years now. Mm -hmm. and affects our daily lives. And this is what got you interested in genetic diseases and how they work and is just so much a part of why we do this podcast. Yeah, definitely. So I'm sorry, it's not going to be the most lighthearted because it is really quite an emotional topic for us, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just bear with us. Yeah. So, how would you broadly describe Crohn's disease? So, Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disorder. So that means it's when your immune system goes all crazy and starts attacking bits of your own body instead of actual pathogens. And in Crohn's disease, it's when your immune system is attacking bits of your digestive system. So that can be all the way from the esophagus 
down through your stomach, small intestine, and large intestine. Yep. Yep. That's a, that's a very good description of Crohn's disease. Woo! So um, there are two main types of what's called inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, ulcerative colitis only really affects the large intestine, but Crohn's disease can affect any part of the digestive system, just as Jules had said. And uh, there are these common, the most common subtypes that they're broken down into is ileal, which just means the small intestine's affected, ileal colic, which means that the small intestine and the large intestine's affected, which is what I have. By the way, large intestine is also called the colon. I did not know this for years. <laughs> Years and years of talking to Ant about how he didn't have a colon, and I never put together that that was the same as a large intestine. So, j just in case anybody else didn't know that. <laughs> That's fair. And then the third subtype that people tend to break it down into is colonic. So that's just your large intestine that's predominantly affected. Yeah, I, th I think you know a decent number of these symptoms, actually. What ones can you think of? Lots and lots of... Tummy pain and cramping. Yeah. Um, going to the toilet really frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, basically diarrhea all the time. Yeah, or dysentery when it's bad. Dysentery? Yes. So I thought that was a different illness. So dysentery actually means loose bowel movements with blood. So lots of things can give you dysentery. C. diff, uh, giardia, food poisoning. Wow. Cholera. So every time Oregon Trail Game told me that my people died of dysentery, they could have died of, like, anything? There's a lot of things that could have caused it, yeah. Huh. So yeah, so the, the symptoms... The interesting thing with Crohn's disease and IBD in general is that it typically kicks in around about the age of 20 years old, which is an awkward time. Yeah, it's kind of when lots of people have huge life events happening and they're trying to find independence and then their whole life can change. And another thing about it is it often goes undiagnosed for a while. It can be difficult to diagnose, yeah. Yeah, like in your story, you got rapidly very unwell and were able to be diagnosed quite quickly. But um, I've spoken to many people who have gone years because they have more mild symptoms of um, IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease, or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, that have gone years undiagnosed because it's really hard for them to get their pain recognized as more than just like a funny tummy. Yeah, so that that is um, obviously really awkward. And part of the reason mine was diagnosed so quickly was because it was uncharacteristically fast and aggressive. But at the same time, because it was so aggressive, they, um, I was being treated for infection first and I was going, like, I had weeks on antibiotics in hospital with a horrific fever before getting to that test because you've got to go through all the, uh, the common simple causes before you get to the slightly more complicated ones. But yeah, so average onset for Crohn's disease is about 20 years old. You experience abdominal pains, as Jill said. These can range from feeling quite uncomfortable to feeling like you're passing knives through your body. Interestingly, the uh, the scene from Alien, where the alien bursts out of the person's stomach, the guy who wrote that scene had Crohn's disease, and it was his way of artistically representing what a flare-up felt like. Whoa. And a flare-up is when your symptoms... Are active. Are active, because they can... Sometimes they're there, but not 100% of the time. Yes. Yeah. And then other symptoms, so we were talking about the diarrhea and dysentery, and you saying, you know, I go to the toilet a lot when there's a flare-up. The thing to point out is that uh, in really severe cases, this can be more than 20 times a day. And when I was in hospital, I was going upwards of 13 times a day. It's a really, like, it's, it's a lot of times. When you think a lot, like, probably increase your expectation of how often someone's going to be going to the toilet. Uh, vomiting can be a problem as well. Uh, anemia, because combination blood loss or malabsorption uh, you can get skin rashes fevers abdominal distensions that's when the stomach starts stretching out so that's that's the kind of thing you know like the pictures of starving kids yes in... it's exactly the same type yeah of it's symptoms. when they when they look really skinny but their tummy looks like it's a balloon yes 
That's a distended stomach. Yes, that is exactly right. And when you tap on a distended stomach, it feels like it feels like you're tapping on a basketball. So that's actually what doctors often do. And you go in with stomach problems, they'll kind of lie you down and just start tapping your stomach. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the tapping's better than the poking. It's weird when 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 you do, when the first few times when your doctor is just tapping on your stomach and listening, y you think that they've gone a little mad. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a few more symptoms. Uh, there's also weight loss is incredibly common. I unfortunately experienced that one a lot. And is that why is that? That was a whole load of reasons. So uh, malabsorption, you won't be eating as much. Sorry, I mean, malabsorption? So malabsorption is that you, because the intestines are damaged, you're not actually absorbing as many nutrients from the same amount of food. Okay. And also because you've got diarrhea, the food's passing through your system quicker a lot of the time, so you become dehydrated, so you lose water weight, but you can also lose uh, food just because everything passing is passing through quicker. And... You also often eat less because you feel absolutely terrible. Yeah. Uh, you can also growth failure. If if a child has Crohn's disease, you might have a certain uh, you might have reduced growth or failure to grow to any moderate extent. So you. I can thought have... you said that this kicks in around age twenty. Most often. But sometimes kids have it. Yeah, there's a subtype I'll mention later called neonatal Crohn's. Oh. But uh, those those are like some of the common ones, and just one I thought I'd mention is called erythema nodosum. And you might be quite familiar with this one, Jules. This is the is this the one where you had the like bruising and swelling all over your legs and couldn't walk? Yes. What a fun time. So erythema nodosum is like a sort of inflammatory rash of sorts. And your skin's uh, the fat beneath um between your skin and muscle starts to ulcerate and become inflamed and it's really painful to the touch. And this happens most frequently around your joints, so it also makes mobility a bit difficult. It's such a weird symptom, considering everything else is, like, stomach-based. Well, it's... so yeah, there are extra-intestinal symptoms, and they are seen more often in more severe cases, and they're quite rare in general. So erythema nodosum is actually quite rare in Crohn's, which is so frustrating that I got it, because it's only, like, 5% of <laughs> Yay, all cases. Yay, you're special! It's only 5% of cases that get it. So that was annoying, needless to say. And uh, the other symptom that we've not really discussed is fatigue. Oh yeah. So something that something some so the thing about chronic illnesses that I think often goes really under discussed is beside all the other symptoms, and this applies to lots and lots of chronic illnesses, is that they cause extreme fatigue. So the best way of describing this I've heard is the spoon theory, where you. Like, say I have nine spoons every day, and every action I do, eating breakfast, going to work, uses up a spoon. If I had a chronic illness like Crohn's, I only have, I don't know, four spoons. And so, people with chronic illnesses can get much more tired much faster. They often, on a bad days, just can't do as much as somebody who's completely healthy. And it's through no fault of their own, it's not through laziness or lack of trying or just going, oh, I'm in pain. It's they just don't have the physical energy to. And I just think that kind of extreme fatigue often gets overlooked. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's um, it, it's annoying because obviously I work in an environment now where your output and your performance are quite big and sometimes that gets overlooked that my health can have quite an effect on what I can put out or that I don't want to draw attention to it because no one this is the the other problem you sometimes have to if someone has a chronic illness and you know it, you have to kind of take it as a given that some days might be slower and don't ask questions because you as someone living with it, you don't want to draw attention to it. You don't want to be known as the person with this health problem. You want to be known as, you know, Anthony. Like, you know, you want to be known as yourself. So you don't draw attention to it even on the days when you're suffering. Yeah, I think one one useful way to think of it for women is lots of us women on days in our menstrual cycle just struggle. Some of us can't do as much on those couple of days where we're in intense pain or we're just really tired. And you know that you go to the office and you sit there and just kind of fake work sometimes. And yet you can't let 
bosses know that your output is affected. Now apply that to every day. Yeah, that's a that's a fair description. Um, it's weird to think of my Crohn's disease as being a lifelong menstrual cycle, but I think it's, not... it's a decent description. I mean, yeah, I get horrible abdominal cramps and I bleed. It's not the worst description. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, so as uh, as you mentioned a little earlier on, uh, diagnosis is a bit complicated with this condition. The best way to diagnose is to you you need to first of all the person needs to be experiencing active symptoms so that means that right at that moment they're having these intestinal symptoms yeah and then you need to do an endoscopic test so you get a a long camera kind of like so it could be a colonoscopy for example for someone with uh uh crohn's with um crohn's disease or with ulcerative colitis they'd always use that one and you're looking to see ulcers on the intestines, what are called uh, knife-like lacerations. And that's one of the things that can separate it from uh, from ulcerative colitis. However, the problem is the most severe cases of ulcerative colitis look like severe cases of Crohn's disease. And that's what can make diagnosis very difficult. Is ulcerative colitis caused by the same things as Crohn's? There is some overlap, but the problem is that no one really fully understands the cause, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay, but, like, in my head, they're kind of very similar, but ulcerative colitis is just just limited to one bit, while Crohn's can affect the whole system. Yeah, I mean, the way I would think of it, which I think is better, is that Crohn's disease is an umbrella term for a whole series of inflammatory diseases. That can affect different part that can affect you throughout the digestive tract, and ulcerative colitis is an umbrella term for a whole bunch of inflammatory diseases that are restricted to the colon, and then IBD is an even larger umbrella term for all of them. And we just haven't covered the scope of any of them yet. Bad tummy problems. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, you were saying how it gets diagnosed. <laughs> so you would put a camera up there, or you'd swallow a camera pill, and you'd ideally take camera pill. You can take them, yes. That sounds like it's from a movie. But that's something you probably do to someone who's already been diagnosed when you're just trying to look at things. But you'd ideally you'd ideally do the endoscopic approach because you can take biopsies as well. I'm I'm stuck at the coolness of a camera pill. And but the weird thing is, you you don't get painkillers or anything when they take the biopsies. It's a really weird one. They take pinches out of you, and because you don't have much in the way of pain receptors on your intestines, it just feels like someone's pinching the inside of your intestines. <sighs> and for anyone who has never experienced that, I can't describe it to you because it's not painful. It's just weird. <sighs> so, so a colonoscopy or an endoscope, an endoscopy, endoscopy, endoscopy. Yeah. So a colonoscopy or an endoscopy are like they're considered procedures. So you have to, like, fully be booked into a hospital, a hospital appointment. appointment. Yeah, and colonoscopies are really common procedures, and all men especially need to be doing them as they get older, according to doctor recommendations, for cancer screening purposes, right? Yeah, bowel cancer. Yeah, but is it just men or is it everyone? It is, it should be everyone, but I believe that the age is youngest in men for when you start. Okay, so everybody will probably face them at some point, and they're okay, but they are a procedure that doctors aren't going to just book everybody in for. No, no, you don't tend to just, ha you don't do walk-in colonoscopies. So you have to really be having some quite severe symptoms before that point. Yes, and these things can go on for a while. I mean, you know, before, yeah, so in my case, obviously I, gl gloss I glossed over it a little bit there, but there was about it was about a week of suffering before I spoke to a doctor. Then there was about a week of suffering before my next appointment, for when I then got admitted. And then there was about three weeks in hospital before I got a diagnosis because they needed to rule out infection. And once they had given me antibiotics for a long enough period of time to rule that out, they then had to start all the other tests. So that's when I started having like x-rays to see what the abdomen looked like. Um, when it started looking distended, they then had to go, right, do we think this is a blockage or something like that? Let's take a look at those x-rays again. Let's check the fever. Let's check the bloods. Make sure there's nothing else. And then they do the scope test. So it took two weeks in hospital before I had the actual scope, uh, the endoscopy appointment. Yeah, and then it took years for them to accurately diagnose you with Crohn's. 
yeah, it took a year and a half from my first attack. And that's really quick. Yeah. Okay, so what's the outlook for patients with Crohn's disease? There is no cure. There are treatments. Unfortunately, people who have Crohn's disease do have to expect a slight reduction to their life expectancy. But there are treatments that are making that less and less the case. And there are different treatments depending on what stage you are and what severity. So the first type of treatments are what called 5-ASAs or 5-amino salicylates. And so those were some words. So yeah, so they're a topical anti-inflammatory for the guts. So you Okay, what does topical mean? So topical means that you like rub it on the but it's when you rub it on uh, cells that are in contact with the outside world. So yeah, skin, so I thought digestive system. was like when you rub something on your arm. Those are topical. So how can something for your intestines be topical? Because your the lining of your intestines is in contact with the outside world. If you think about what? it, it's, it's a tube running from your mouth all the way to your butt. So are you like rubbing cream on the inside of your intestine? I'm so confused. So what you're doing is you're swallowing a tablet that then kind of breaks down into a powder and then with liquid in your digestive system, it becomes kind of like a salve. Oh, really? Yeah. And then... Is that how most pills work? A lot of pills will get absorbed, like you're hoping for the drug to be absorbed. In this case, you're not. The drug doesn't get absorbed through the gut. It stays on the gut and it's... Uh, it's supposed to kind of calm down the inflammation. That's amazing! So the the next sort of thing, or another thing that you might get given, paracetamol. What do you do? Yeah, pain management. Uh, I can tell you right now, it does sweet F.A. Uh, I would say, though, although you can take paracetamol or Tylenol, if you're American, never, ever give someone NSAIDs. What's Unless... an NSAID? So NSAIDs are things like ibuprofen or... Um, or basically any other over-the-counter painkiller. So ibuprofen, aspirin, okay, naproxen. Why? Because their side effects include intestinal ulceration. Oh. That so, doesn't seem helpful exactly <laughs> if your so. problem is already intestinal. So giving someone those painkillers, so Advil I think would be the brand name for ibuprofen in the States, you could make someone bleed more. Not ideal. Yeah. So avoid those ones. And actually, um, ibuprofen is not supposed to be taken for a, when you have a lot of different conditions for that reason, right? Yes. So something to be aware of next time you pull ibuprofen out of your bag and offer it to somebody. Yep. Uh, there are other drugs as well. Uh, anti-diarrheal medication. So fairly obvious what that's for. There's antispasmodics for the gut. So this is to help with those uh, abdominal cramps because the cramps are actually caused by the intestine spasming. And you get the pain from not just the severity of the spasm, but also because often you'll have inflammation and you'll have scarring. So you've basically got open wounds being slapped together. Ow. Mm-hmm. So that one can be very helpful. So buscopan is the, type of the one people tend to get for that. Uh, otherwise, um, corticosteroid medication is often used. Steroids? Not that type of steroids. It's the uh, type to bring down inflammation and suppress, and it will suppress your immune response a little bit. So, so the non-fun steroids? No. <laughs> but you've got to be careful with them because they also increase the chances of you getting an infection. And they can also thin your bones out, and there's a whole host of other horrible side effects. So they try. To, so doctors try to put you, if you need steroids, they try to put you on drugs that reduce your need for them. And these are all... Uh, I've, uh, these are all some type of immune suppressant. So what you've listed so far is all kind of day-to-day -day management. And then the next step is doctors put you on immune suppressants to help make your immune system chill out. Yeah, basically. I mean, and it's quite hardcore to be on immune suppressants, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, to an extent. I, I mean, long-term corticosteroid use is a lot more hardcore. But yeah, when you get into this stage, this is the medication that you will be on for the foreseeable future, really. Uh, and the immune suppressants kind of come under two different types that you're going to take. One is kind of called the, they're just called thiopurines. That's the chemical group they belong to, but they are just tablet drugs that you take uh, that include azathioprine and methotrexate that reduce the activity of your immune system a bit by making you make less of the cells that freak out. 
But if you have too too high a dose of it, it's also the sort of thing that can that can crash your immune system a bit or can start giving you the uh, symptoms of leukemia. So you've got to be very careful with it. But those doses are a lot. I can see the look you're giving me. Those you've doses... never told me you could get leukemia from your drugs. The the doses are much higher than I would need when it comes to that drug. That is a side effect you have never told me about before. Yep. I wonder why. Those drugs have multiple uses. The doses that you'd be taking them for uh, someone who's had an organ transplant are more likely to cause that effect. I suggest you move move swiftly on. <laughs> the next one are the biologics. So these are antibody therapies. So you uh... get so you get antibodies injected into your bloodstream that attack and neutralize a certain aspect of your immune system to calm it down. Antibodies are like the things that you make in your body naturally to neutralize bacteria and viruses and things like that. Um, when you see those little graphics with the little Y-shaped um, things so being released from cells... So antibodies just help you fight off other things? How would it attack your own immune system? So antibodies are kind of customizable in a sense. They have one end that gets recognized by your immune system and you get the other end that recognizes other things. If you modify that end, you can make it recognize something like TNF-alpha, which is a factor in your immune system that encourages inflammation. So the antibody can attach to it, neutralize it, and you have less of that signal telling your body, yeah, let's go, let's fight. Okay. <laughs> I wish I hadn't asked that. Yeah, I, I kind of knew you would regret that. But there are a few different types of biologics, and they're grouped based on their mechanisms. So you have the... Uh, what are called anti-TNFs, so they're the ones, the best way to put it is that these neutralize something, a, a signal that your cells send to rally the troops. So this way you're calming the immune system down. And these include infliximab, or is it sometimes called Remicade, and Humira. So does this mean you have no immune system? No, no, you're calming it down. So you, you're, you're, my, my immune system is overactive, I'm trying to bring it down to a normal activity. Oh, okay. Unfortunately with this though, and this is what happened with me, patients can gain an immunity to the anti-TNF treatments. And it can either happen through some people just aren't just become less sensitive to it, or as happened in my case, my immune system developed a response to the drugs and made antibodies to get rid of the therapy. <sighs> yeah, so many um, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients go through multiple different drugs over time. Often the first drug won't work, or um, it may work for a bit and then stop working. So it's a bit like anybody who's experienced antidepressants might have jumped through several different drugs to try and find the one that works for them. That's how it works for Crohn's disease as well. Yeah, the only, the only difference is that uh, with an antidepressant, normally if the drug has been working for you, it will keep working for you. There is the chance with some treatments for Crohn's disease that after a while your body will stop, will just, will just become resistant to it and they'll never work again. Your immune system just needs to chill it out. Really, it really does. It really does. But so then there are other, there are other um, biologic treatments that you can take as well. And I'm on one of these other ones. And then the final and obviously the last resort treatment is surgery. Just. Take out the bit of intestine. That is inflamed, yeah. Uh, and the reason that you do this is that if it's gotten to that stage, there's the possibility that the intestine will rupture, and then you could die from sepsis. So what I find crazy, or what I found crazy when I met you and learned about Crohn's disease was that you can just remove an intestine. So I was wondering, could we talk a little bit about stomas? Uh, yeah, we could talk a little bit about stomas. So, as I understand it, it's when you've had a bit of intestine cut out in surgery, and they pull it to the, through a hole in your tummy and make a little pouch to kind of fill the gap in your intestine. So, it's, it's more like setting a bypass up in your digestive system. So... If you've had a surgical procedure in place and you need that tissue to recover, you might divert the uh, the food in a different route. So you'll get a bit of intestine and you'll push it out through the through the, the abdominal wall, like you said, 
and you'll have it drain outside into a bag. And that will be one way of having a stoma. The way I had it was my entire large intestine was removed, and so there wasn't really the same route for it to go through as before, so they had to create a new route for it to go through. So it was more controllable having it go through a bag than having it go the route going going how it was before with none of the brakes in place. Hmm. Yeah, and these stomas, so they're like a physical sign of kind of what of of this disease. Yeah, they can be quite visible, especially if you swim or anything like that. Yeah, and they they're worth noting because on top of all these other symptoms, they can really drastically affect somebody's day-to-day life. And they massively affect your self-esteem. Whether or not you want them to, they will affect a lot of people's self-esteem. Yeah. It's worth noting that they're actually fairly common in terms of the Crohn's disease and related diseases are much more common than you would think. If you start kind of talking to people about about it, somebody will know somebody that has it. Yeah, there's a good chance. And, and they, many people with these diseases end up with stomas for a while or for their whole lives. And it's, I think there's something that's really important to destigmatize because they're fine. They're not that gross. It's just a thing on their stomach. They'll take care of it. Yeah, yeah, it is um it is a real point of anxiety having a stoma because and it's nothing to do with how it's going to behave, but it's how you how you think people would perceive the stoma and how it behaves. Yeah. So if you ever notice that somebody has a stoma, you might see the the bag somewhere on their stomach or the outline of it against their clothes. You know, just Make an extra effort to be super supportive of them and how they look because they might have severe anxiety about it. Yeah, and don't actually draw attention to it. Yes, that too. So, that was all the physical stuff. What type of genetic disease actually is this? So, this is uh, this is a little complicated. So oh, no. the, the best way to describe it is probably a multigenic disorder. So it affects more than one gene? Multiple genes are needed to cause the disease. So you need multiple faults interacting with each other. Oh boy. Yeah, this is why it makes it very complicated and this is kind of why I, I called even Crohn's disease an umbrella term because different people will have different mutations. But the direct cause, so what triggers Crohn's disease, is unknown and the same for all IBD. It's believed to be caused by a combination of environmental, immune and bacterial factors in genetically susceptible people. So the genes you inherit make you susceptible to the disease, but then something else has to happen for you to actually have it. That's so weird. Yeah. Is that common at all? I feel like we've never discussed a genetic disease like that. That's because we haven't covered any autoimmune diseases. They're almost all like that. There has to be something else that triggers it? Yeah, autoimmune diseases are very complicated for this reason because there are often multiple genes involved and different genes will give you a certain level of, uh, let's say, proneness. And then something happens that we often don't know what it is that then pushes you off. It's like you just need that straw, that, 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 that final straw, to then tip the immune system over. So no longer doing what it should be doing and kind of going rogue on you. And this is because the immune system obviously isn't controlled by one tiny gene. Yeah, yeah, basically. People have tried to work out what genes are associated with Crohn's disease. There's a lot. Oh no. Do you want to take a guess? I don't know. 10? Higher. 20? More than 70. Oh boy. So there are more than 70 genes that have been found to be involved with Crohn's disease. Uh, two I'm just going to bring attention to that have had quite a strong connection. Uh, one is called ATG16L. I'm going to explain what it is. It makes a protein that's involved in autophagy. That's the process where your cells kind of eat up material that it doesn't need inside itself. Nom 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 nom. Yeah, the best best way to put it. So, if that's faulty, your cells aren't breaking down those things as well, and they include things such as pro-inflammatory cytokines in your immune system. Cytokine is basically a signal that says something has to happen. So, it's a signal that tells other cells, let's go fight. If it can't break them down, you have more of them floating around, 
So your body just keeps sending more signals to fight. So your body's just like flooded with with little cells saying, Go! Go to battle! Onwards! Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's basically... It's, it's like keeping the YouTube comment section on. <laughs> it's that level of, you know, it can go completely out of control. Okay. Another one is what's called IL-10R. Now, this gene makes a protein that's called the interleukin-10 receptor. The things you need to know there, interleukin-10 is one of these cytokines, and its job is to tell the immune system to calm down. And it's one of the strongest signals you have in your body for calming down the immune system. Okay. But you can have a mutation that means the receptor doesn't respond to that signal. So you're, you don't end up ever telling your body to calm down. Yeah, it's like putting headphones it's like putting headphones on your drunk friend's ears when he's about to have a fight so that no one can talk him out of it. <laughs> what a description. Okay. It's a good one though. Yeah. And this one has this mutation in particular has been linked to neonatal Crohn's. Oh. So this one has such a strong effect and the interplay of interleukin 10 in this immune system in the immune system in Crohn's disease can have such a strong influence that this fault can cause Crohn's disease symptoms before birth. Before birth? In some cases, yes. And one thing that uh, confused doctors a little bit is uh, when they've done some tests on me, uh, we don't know if it's been seen in other cases, but I actually developed antibodies against my own interleukin-10. Of course you did. But that's really strange. Like... Why do you have to be so special, Ant? I don't want to be. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's like a very brief touch on some of the genetics around it, because otherwise it's an absolute headache nightmare to try and get into 70 genes, how they all interact with each other, and frankly, even the, the even the people that lead in these these areas of research don't know. So we can't even say whether it's like dominant or recessive, because it's a big pile of genes, and... Well, if you neither. have a kid, it may or may not be triggered at some point, who knows? Yeah. Um, it's worth pointing that siblings are 30 times more likely to get Crohn's. So the siblings of a Crohn's patient are 30 times more likely than the general population to have it. So there is, you know, it's definitely got some genetic influence to it. But you, you definitely couldn't call it dominant or recessive because there's multiple genes. So there's not a dominant or recessive trait if another gene can do the job. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't think we said. How common is Crohn's? Crohn's is very common. Uh, Crohn's affects 1 in 300 people. That's lots. Or at least those are for the numbers taken in the US and Europe. Cases are considered lower in what are called developing countries, but they have been increasing. And if I was to take any guesses, I would think that it's probably due to the fact that it's being diagnosed more readily. In those countries now, so I don't think there's a actual prevalent necessarily a prevalence difference. Yeah, and that's all due to autoimmune diseases often needing a lot of time and medical attention to diagnose. And now we get to your least favorite section. No, I don't want to hear about any of the other bad things. Yeah. You're gonna make me cry again. Well, you know some of these anyway. Arthritis. Yep. And is that because? While your body is freaking out and making your tummy inflamed, it might be affecting other joints and making them inflamed as well? Yes. And so the thing is, one or two things can happen with Crohn's you can, um, if you're having joint pain. You can either have just joint pain, which is called arthralgia, or you can have arthritis. Arthritis is when you have actual inflammation at the joint that can damage the tissue. Oh no. Uh, inflammation of the eye is another condition that you can get. The eye? Yeah. Why? Again, it's probably just due to the fact that if you're in a overly inflamed state or like, you know, your whole body's freaking out, then that starts happening. So some of these are quite rare, thankfully. One's not. Fistula. So that's when... So you were talking about lesions in the stomach. This is like a lesion around... Is it specifically... So a fistula can kind of occur anywhere, but it's it's like a tube from... So when you've had an inflammatory attack, the tissue's been damaged and it's made a tube that's linking 
the either some organs together or an organ to the outside world. So, for example, you could have one going from your intestine to your skin and feed into the outside world, or from your stomach into the outside world, from your rectum to the outside world. So it can cause quite a few complications. That sounds not fun. No, no, they're not. They really aren't. You can also get... Now, this is a condition I hadn't heard of, but it explains why they did some tests on me. It's called primary, primary sclerosing cholangitis. Words. Yeah. So what that means is inflammation and scarring of the liver and gallbladder. Now, I thought that this was just because I was a student and they assumed alcohol damage. But uh, no, there are other reasons that they were doing an ultrasound on my gallbladder and liver. Great. Another organ to worry about. Don't worry. It's all fine. At the moment. Yep. Other complications you can get? Uh, ankylosing spondylitis. Okay, this one is scary but really cool. So ankylosing spondylitis is another inflammatory condition where inflammation causes what you'd say is kind of like a certain level of destruction and ossification. So round the spine, the inflammation will damage the area and then bone will grow over it. So you just get extra bone growing all over? So the, well, it's in the lower spine. So the lower spine starts fusing together, which then causes problems in mobility. Yeah, you kind of need your spine to like bend. Yeah, yeah, and this is you know it's a progress it's a it's another progressive degenerative condition, so it's kind of awful if you get that. But there is a there is a link between them, and Crohn's can sometimes cause ankylosing spondylitis. Lovely. There's also an increased risk of colon cancer, though I am not worrying about that one because I you don't don't have a colon exactly. So, you know, I will take the small small things, just like I can't get appendicitis because it turns out it's attached to your large intestine, so when they take it out, it's a, it's a toofer. <laughs> there is also, uh, and this, this is, um, if you have really severe cases of inflammation, as I mentioned earlier, it can cause rupture of the intestines and sepsis. And that was what they were worried about with mine, and that can, and that can be fatal. Not good. Yeah, and uh, this was a, a weird fact I found. Inflammatory bowel disease, and this is why people shouldn't be mixing it up with irritable bowel syndrome. Inflammatory bowel disease has resulted in 47,400 deaths in 2015. Whoa. And on that note, we're taking a break. And we're back. We're back. Please make this more fun. We're on to the history section. Yeah, but do you actually have any good history? Yes, I do. This one's got quite a lot of good history, actually. Okay, I'm ready. So, should we start off with some of the human history? Yeah. Okay, so as far as records are concerned, we could have some recordings of IBD. Obviously, we can't distinguish between... Crohn's and ulcerative colitis for obvious reasons, going as far back as about 400 BCE, because Hippocrates made a lot of notes of people having a propensity towards diarrhea and describing specific etiologies of diarrhea that have given some medical historians reason to suspect that a few of those cases may have been IBD. Oh, good old Hippocrates! Also, the prominence of inflammation of the gut was featured in several early 19th century medical schools. Ah, so they were already training people up on, yeah. well, they probably didn't really know what to do, but that was a problem at least. <laughs> yeah, so there was, but this is an interesting one, so both François-Joseph-Victor Brousseurs and John Brown put forth theories that all diseases derived from inflammation in the GI tract. All of them. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> this was in the 1800s that they put this forward. We, we've obviously changed our tack since then. It's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. And uh, the earliest kind of unambiguous descriptions of 
IBD date back to 1761, although at the time these were regarded as tumours, so the ulceration stuff were considered as tumours in the gut. That's weird. So I, I don't know if it's that we still have the tissues, or probably, because of how medicine was conducted back then, we have the drawings of the tissue that they were dealing with, and people have looked at them now and gone, yeah, that's not a tumour, that's, that's an ulcer, that's a laceration. So I... I presume that, from that history, that this wasn't super treatable? No, we have not been able to treat it, really, until the 20th century. Yay, modern medicine! Yeah, um, and you know, I'll go into that a, a little bit later, but I thought I'd also say we can actually, to some extent, trace the genetic history. We can? I know, I was really thrown off. But you, you said it was from, like, 70 genes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to some extent we can, because the there's, there's been a study that identified mutations in many of these genes in both humans, Neanderthals, and another group of ancient uh, hominids called the Denisovans. In all three of those groups, they found multiple genes that are associated with Crohn's disease with mutations that we would then also associate with Crohn's disease. Whoa! Which implies that this propensity to get Crohn's disease originated in the ancestor of all three. Wow. So or even older. So at least one million years old. So is there any advantage to this? So it was believed in, uh, that in earlier human history, a more active immune system was beneficial to survival and that these conditions may have become more common over time due to immune systems being challenged less and a lack of parasites that can actively suppress the immune system. So a lot of flatworms that you might find in your digestive tract actually suppress the immune system. So people who get hookworm and things like that, they can suppress your immune system. So having an overactive immune system that's more likely to attack the gut is fine if you have parasites continuously suppressing them. Oh, so just like the thing about how maybe children now have more allergies than they used to because we clean everything with antibacterials all the time. Yeah. It's the same theory, basically, but yeah. over a longer time period. Yeah, just, you know, we're not giving our children tapeworm and hookworm. So you are so ready to go live out on a deserted island. I mean... That's what your body is ready for. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure if I did one of those things where we ended up in a uh, in an apocalypse situation, I'd have to go and actively seek out parasites, which is not a fun thing to do. <laughs> okay. Just diving into a swamp and hoping. <laughs> but then you'd be so ready. Maybe. <laughs> I would not be, so, I mean, have fun. But yeah, so there, there is a... A reasonable reason for why this mutation may have been around for so long. That's so interesting. Okay, so back to the like medical history. When did we figure this out? So for this, I think it's best to kind of cover a bit of the history of IBD in general, because for a while we couldn't actually distinguish Crohn's disease from ulcerative colitis. And even now we struggle. So ulcerative colitis was... Uh, it was characterized in about 1888, soon after the advent of germ theory. Ooh. And a doctor called Sir William Hale White of London published a thorough description of a case that he'd seen, and he gave the name ulcerative colitis. And... He didn't name it after himself? No. Proud of him. I mean, it would be quite difficult to find someone called colitis. <laughs> or ulcer. <laughs> He described it as having growth issues, dysentery, and it's from that report that the term ulcerative colitis entered general medical vocabulary. Cool. Crohn's disease was characterized later. By a Dr. Crohn? Yes. Gastroenterologist Burrell Bernard Crohn, together Burl. with his two colleagues at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, characterized Crohn's disease. And at the time, any disease in the small intestine was thought to be intestinal tuberculosis. Oh, because of the tumour thing? I guess so, but I I didn't know you could get tuberculosis in the test, intestine, or I'd never associated it with that, so that's interesting. 
And these doctors, they collected data from 14 patients with symptoms of abdominal cramps, diarrhea, fever, and weight loss, and showed that the symptoms were not the results of tuberculosis or any other known disease. And that's how they showed that there was this separate illness and that it's Crohn's disease. Okay. Historically, IBD has had a horrific treat has had horrific treatment. And I said that, you know, therapy start like we actually had treatments for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis in the twentieth century. The accurate answer to that is that we had it in the late twentieth century. Oh. Because beforehand it was variable and we probably reached our lowest point in the 50s. The 50s? Yes, because it was considered psychosomatic. It was considered a psychological illness. They thought people were making it up? No, they thought it was a result of some sort of psychosis or other mental health problem, and that they had to deal with the mental health problem. Why was your... what? What? Mm-hmm. I don't ask me how, I don't like know. It seems like a really intensely physical problem, though. I think maybe because it can be exacerbated by stress, but the 50s, particularly for psychologists and psychiatrists in Europe and the States, was not a good period for treating patients well. What did they do? Well, electroshock therapy, Novocaine injections into the brain. What? And in the early 50s, the first recorded case of a lobotomy for treating Crohn's disease was used, specifically for treating Crohn's disease. Huh. I'm sure that worked. Hmm. Well, I'm sure the person wasn't complaining anymore, and I think that's all they cared about. I... I am appalled. I just... How... Okay, there's some things I understand you could... You could look and go, Oh, this is a psychological issue. Crohn's has very physical symptoms that, like... You can't hide. <laughs> yeah, but as I said, it was considered psychosomatic, so physical symptoms caused by your psychology. D there's no point in looking to sense for it. From our perspective now, it's horrifying. Uh, even the conversations that were had back then were horrifying. Like, it split opinions. Not all doctors believed that. A lot of them didn't, even within the same hospital. And in one case where someone, uh, where one doctor put forward that you know, this individual was mentally fine, a lovely person, you'd want them as a child. The other doctor's response was, I have never met a person that would want someone with Crohn's disease as a son. <gasps> that is the mentality of only 70 years ago. I'm really glad they didn't give you a lobotomy. Mm -hmm. I like your brain. But one thing that is worth noting, it does not justify it, but it can kind of explain why the treatments were as desperate and, in some cases, insane as they were, is that back in the 50s, IBD had a mortality rate of 30%. 30%? Yeah. What is it now? I, I mean, I'm not sure if anyone bothers working out the rate of IBD now, but it's a hell of a lot lower. Yay! So, would you like to kind of move on to the uh, more optimistic future? Yeah, because I'm so angry at those doctors. I think anything that involves the phrase psychiatry and 50s, you know it's going to be bad. I just hate anything that starts with psychosomatic. That's fair, it's quite a condescending term. But there are some treatments coming in the future, including, strangely, gene therapy. Ooh. So it's at a preclinical stage, but scientists were able to use a virus to insert a working interleukin-10 gene into gut cells of mice. So, remember how I said interleukin-10 was that really strong, calm-down signal for yeah. your immune system? So, they were able to do that, and it has shown some success. Whether or not that then works in humans obviously remains to be seen, but preclinical has been promising. Ooh. There are some trial treatments available. There was one which uh, you'll remember at one of my appointments was discussed, which was the uh, the stem cell treatment. Oh, yeah. So, Jules is looking incredibly uncomfortable now, and uh, the reason is that what this therapy involves is they, they would have had to have taken some of my blood to get the stem cells to grow separately and retrain. Whilst doing that, they would have wiped out my entire immune system with chemotherapy, so the drugs you use for cancer, and then once my immune system was completely wiped out, they would 
reinsert the stem cells that have been retrained to rebuild my immune system. This is a last resort option. <laughs> yeah, and the the promise that came with it was not this will get rid of your Crohn's, it was um, this will at least make you more receptive to treatment. Yeah, so it it is an important development. <laughs> you know, I have uh, strong reactions to it because I would prefer it not to go through chemotherapy if he doesn't have to, <laughs> but it it could help people. Yeah, and the, the problem is, and the problem I'm facing and that a lot of people are facing is that the options can run out very quickly. Yeah, like there's only so many different immune suppressants you can cycle through. It's not something that we have a thousand treatments for. But yeah, so there, there is that. Um, there, so there is that form of treatment. There are also some other promising preclinical therapies. So there is a drug that basically dampens a gene involved in blood clotting in the intestines. And for some reason, when they lower the activity of this gene in the guts, it also calms down the inflammation in the area. But you said blood clotting. So I think the reason is that blood clotting is also something that you do in an immune response because you clot the blood, you bring in all the immune cells in that area to then try and clean away any potential infection. Mm -hmm. But if your body's just attacking itself, if you just lower that signal a little bit, you call in less troops. Huh. In theory, I think that might be what's happening. But I don't fully understand the process of that particular therapy option. Okay. But that might be something in the future, and that would be a lot more uh, simple treatment compared to the stem cell option. Yeah. So we're at the uh, the final stage where we've got to try our hardest not to get angry. Destigmatizing. Okay, let's go. So let's cover a couple of the uh, the ones that are aimed at well-meaning people, so that you don't accidentally offend someone. As someone with this condition. I understand that you want to help me. However, I wouldn't make any dietary recommendations. I talk to professionals about that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's adjusted all the time. This is something we totally forgot to talk about. Crohn's and IBD, they can completely change the diet somebody can have. Mm -hmm. And this is because of particularly fibrous foods. If your intestines just aren't working very well, they're not going to be able to break down things that are tougher, like a lot of uncooked vegetables might be very fibrous. And so it changes people's day-to-day -day diets quite a lot in many cases. Yes. However, people make suggestions like particular supplements, and it's from the it's coming from the right place, but it's not helpful. And it's yeah. just frustrating. So that's yeah, one, like, so please don't. You know probiotics or not eating gluten or something they these are things that can help some individuals that are having stomach problems for somebody with ulcerative colitis or crohn's that is not their problem and they have a doctor advising them what they should eat so just leave it to the professionals yeah the other one is when someone's not well and i've unfortunately experienced this one a few times and it is annoying don't suggest that they exercise. I exercise more than most people do. So that one's a little annoying, and I have sometimes given people slightly short responses to it, because if you are tired or you're not feeling well and someone says, oh, when you do, maybe you should do some more exercise, it's really hard not to turn back to someone and go, go to the gym three times a week, I walk regularly. It's, it's one of those things that it's, as much as someone is meaning well, it can be very frustrating. So, now that we've covered the ones where people are just trying to be nice, let's cover the more annoying ones that people also do. It's not contagious. People think it's contagious? Yeah, yeah, because they hear disease. Oh, yeah. I guess it is kind of confusing. But also, people look at things and they think that if you have some physical damage, they think you can catch it somehow, or if you have some medical equipment to you. Just like how, people think you can how some people think you can catch eczema off someone else. Oh, because they're thinking skaties? Yeah, things like that. So I have literally been at a beach before where a mother pulled their child closer to them when they saw me and stared at my stoma. 
And I'm well aware that it was most likely that they thought that they wanted to protect their child from something or something like that. But honestly, it's mortifying to get that treatment. Yeah. There are a massive variety of symptoms among patients, so don't expect to understand what someone's going through. I don't expect to understand what other Crohn's patients are going through, and I live with it. It. This is why I use the term, um, why I call it an umbrella term rather than calling it an illness. Because there are so many ranges, and I've met plenty of people with Crohn's disease who have very different lives to me, and very different health problems to me. Yeah, so if you encounter somebody with Crohn's, you know, if they want to talk about it, ask them. Yeah, it's a lot easier. But also, of course, they're not obliged to, you mm -hmm. know? Same with everything we discuss, just approach it sensitively. Yeah, and now uh, two that I think are probably the most important ones to note and are the most infuriating ones. Because people do this... <sighs> mostly online, and it is extremely frustrating, but just never, ever, ever suggest to someone what they should be taking for their Crohn's and discouraging them from taking their medication that's been approved by their doctor. Ah. I've received it multiple times, I know people who've received it multiple times, almost everyone in the Crohn's and colitis community has had someone, be it online or a family member, or a friend of a friend, do this. And it is the most infuriating thing, because as much as you may believe that what you're doing is the right thing for me, or for someone else, the reason that we're taking that medication is to prevent us from being so sick that our lives are at risk. Yeah, and this really stems from, there's a huge amount of confusion about different stomach problems, and I, that gets so mad at me, I mix them up all the time, because there is IBS, Irritable bowel syndrome, which is kind of an umbrella term people use for your stomach gets upset all the time. With certain foods normally. Yeah, usually triggered by certain foods. Versus IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Yep. And, and there's also celiac disease. And celiacs. These all manifest in similar symptoms, but the severity of them and the cause of them vary hugely. So, I mean, I completely understand the confusion. I get super confused. But what worked for you or your friend with your IBS may be completely useless for somebody with IBD or Crohn's. And it's not going to be solved with a change in diet or supplements. Yeah, and honestly, it's quite hurtful when someone says, oh, I was able to, you know, deal with, I was able to deal with my celiacs because I took this stuff, maybe you should give up gluten. I've considered my dietary options. The reason that I will have something like bread is because I can digest it. Yeah, so it, it's usually coming from a good place if they know somebody whose stomach problems have been fixed by making a particular change, but it actually doesn't apply to everybody. No, no it doesn't. And uh, that also links into the final one, which is that no diet or lifestyle can successfully prevent Crohn's. And some people think that. Some people think, oh, you know, you, you got this condition because you were eating some unnatural diet, uh, maybe you should go vegan. I hate to break it to you, but there are vegans with Crohn's disease. There are smokers and non-smokers with Crohn's disease. Vegetarians, people who have paleo diets. They, they, it doesn't discriminate. Yeah. Okay, I have one more. People with invisible disabilities often get stigmatized for using disabled bathrooms. I know this is one that drives you up the wall. Uh, because you often need the disabled toilet because of accessibility or space. Or, you know, especially people with stomas, usually from, to an outsider, it is an invisible disability. So just try, try not to glare at people as they come in and out of a disabled toilet. And, you know, they were either in there because it was free and there was no queue, or because they actually needed it. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, some of it is with how countries and societies 
message what a disability is, and it doesn't help that for such a long period of time, our disabled signs have always been the wheelchair. People with wheelchairs need the accessibility, but there are plenty of other people who can walk who still need the accessibility. Yeah, so and I think the kind of movement I've seen definitely in the UK towards recognising invisible disabilities is really, really cool. Um, changing signage so that there's uh, visual signals for invisible disabilities and uh, as well as the campaign for the sunflower lanyard, a way, a something you can wear to mark that you might need extra assistance, for instance, when going through an airport, because there have been times where your Crohn's have have caused you to be disabled and be unable to get through a crowd or walk a really long way and you need the extra support. And so those kind of campaigns are hugely important for people. Yeah, and I think one thing that's interesting to note is with the invisible illness signs for toilets, that was started by a little girl, with a little Scottish girl with Crohn's disease because she wrote to the Scottish Houses of Parliament asking for signs that recognised it, and then Holyrood was the first place in the UK to have a sign marking invisible illnesses. That's so cool. And I think on that note, with you know having some optimism for where things are going, uh, we should end the show. Yeah, thank you for being really brave and discussing your own story with us. I, I don't think of it as bravery, because it would have meant so much to me if there had been more voices like there have been some i've got to give a shout out to people like hank green for being very open about his illness for people but more voices need to be heard because of how common it is and for anyone that actually does want to know a little bit more about the information crohn's colitis uk is the website that you should go on to and if you want to know more about that historical stuff then the uh the the easier version of the article that you can read is uh, titled New Study Finds Genetic Features Associated with Crohn's Disease Psoriasis Date Back to Pre-Neanderthals in Crohn's Disease News. People just need to talk about it more and there needs to be a little less stigma around intestinal problems and the conversation will be easier. Definitely. So if you enjoyed this episode, get in contact with us, leave us a review on iTunes, Tweet us at GeneticDrift1, email us at GeneticDriftPodcast, uh, or join our Facebook group and get involved in the discussion. Also, feel free to share this with somebody who it might help. Yeah, if you know anyone with uh, Crohn's or IBD and they're struggling a little bit, then ha- pass this on. It might, make some, it might help make sense. Otherwise, there are also some very good YouTubers with uh, Crohn's disease that are helping people understand their illness. Now, the music for this podcast, as with every other episode, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And on the end of that note, please withhold your judgment, because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.